Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to see you here. Uh, like Aaron mentioned, my name is John Lightbody. I'm actually not one of the pastors here, so I'm, I'm a member. Uh, my family and I moved here about two years ago to be a part of River City Church, and uh, this morning I have the privilege of preaching the gospel to you all, which I'm really excited about. Yes, yeah, so my wife's name is Jenny. Our three kids are Evan, Owen, and Nora. Uh, they are ages seven, six, and four, so our house is always a party. We really like it that way. Uh, we are members of the Morrow Small Group, and I'm actually an engineer at Wright Height. Um, again, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm thankful to see you guys here this morning. If you're new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, if there's some way that myself or anyone else you've seen up here this morning can like, just get you plugged into the community here, we would genuinely love to do that. Don't hesitate to come and say hello. So with that said, uh, this morning we are heading towards the end of our preaching series in the book of 1 Corinthians. So uh, 1 Corinthians is a book in the Bible in the New Testament. It was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And interestingly enough, at the time of this letter, Corinth was about a five-year-old church plant, just like River City is. Corinth was a wealthy port city in the ancient world. Uh, it was a city with a lot of new money moving through it, a little bit like a first-century Silicon Valley. Um, but what's interesting about Corinth is the Roman Empire had actually destroyed the city 200 years before this uh, letter was written. And then 100 years later, they rebuilt it. And when they rebuilt Corinth, Rome wanted to settle it with people who were excited about Rome. And so primarily it was settled with two different categories of people. The first were retired Roman soldiers. And the second were former slaves that had been freed. And so what you wound up with in this city was a culture where names are very important and everyone's trying to make one for themselves. So Corinthian culture became all about making this name for yourself. People were really focused on their reputation and their affluence and how people saw them. And the core of culture was being seen by others as influential and praiseworthy and likable. One commentary states that the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. And as we've been talking about, rather than the church being a light in that darkness and being shaped by the gospel to stand out from the city that had this dark culture, they were looking just like the city around them. You see, for the past 12 chapters, we've been discussing how the Corinthian church looked just like the culture around them that was just utterly selfish. And this attitude, as we've been discussing in chapter 12, it has carried over into their attitude towards spiritual gifts. We've seen that some of the people in Corinth are really ashamed of their spiritual gifts, and they think they have nothing to offer the rest of the body of Christ. And at the same time, other people are very proud of their gifts, and they think they're awesome, right, and that they, they don't need other people in the body, that they're good on their own. And this attitude has caused these really deep rifts in this church and a lot of division and strife. You see, the Corinthians have come to believe this lie, that the more impressive and miraculous and flashy their spiritual gifts are, the more spiritually mature they must be. But Paul writes to them, and he says, No. God gives gifts to whom he will to build up his glory and build up the body of Christ, not so you can feel really good about yourself. Rather, he gives gifts for the sake of his glory to build up the body. And this week as we continue, Paul is going to explain how love, selflessly looking to the good of others, not flashy or impressive gifts, is to be most valued, most praised, most admired and heralded in the body of Christ. And as we study this morning, we're going to see that the more we experience the patient and kind and protective and unfailing love God has for us, the more we will be willing and able to share that love with others. Because you see, the only way you can patiently bear with others and earnestly seek their good with selfless motivations is when you see that that's how God loved you. 
This morning as we walk through the passage, we're going to see the, the meaning and purpose love brings to life. We're going to see Paul's challenge to the Corinthians. And finally, we're going to see how the gospel redefines love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes us understand and obey your word and love you. And God, we just pray that you'd move in hearts this morning to be awakened to how much you love us, how beautiful the gospel is, so we can treat each other like that. God, for your glory and our joy, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read just a little bit from chapter 12 for context, and we're going to read through the whole of chapter 13. Let's go. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. So there's our bit from 12. So Paul has spent all of 12 talking about spiritual gifts. Now he's going to show them something far, far better. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, or if I have a faith that can move mountains but not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I might boast but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. You see, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So word of the Lord. So like I mentioned in the beginning, what the Corinthians think is great, what they are valuing and celebrating and pursuing are these flashy and miraculous spiritual gifts to make themselves look good. Because again, in Corinth, being seen as impressive, that was key to climbing the social and economic ladder in that city. And that was everything that, that was the thing that people cared the most about. In Corinth, giving eloquent speeches was one way to really bolster your reputation because it made you seem clever and, and worthwhile. So being able to speak in miraculous ways, that was an even greater way in the church to make yourself seem really impressive. In Corinth, wisdom was another way to build a name for yourself. Because if you were intelligent, again, that made you look important and special to other people. Right? So for the Corinthian church, the, the idea of gaining some like, secret spiritual knowledge, right? that was even cooler. That was an even better way to make yourself look good. You see, in Corinth, they even used generosity as a means of self-promotion, giving in these very visible ways as yet another way to boast about themselves. And as Paul continues to correct this wayward church this morning, he reminds them that without love, none of it means anything. Because it's not the acts themselves that are the most important to God, but our motivations behind them as we see again and again in the scriptures. One example in the Old Testament, years before this letter was written to Corinth, 
the prophet Samuel has been asked by God to find which of the sons of Jesse will be king over Israel. And he's going through the tallest, most handsome, smartest, most impressive brother. And God whispers to him again and again, not this one, not this one, not this one. And Samuel starts to get frustrated. And God reminds him, people look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, in the Bible, the heart is the center of our being. It is where we do all of our thinking and feeling, but it's also where our motivations live. It's the why behind the things that we do. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So the gift of tongues, as we've been talking about the past few weeks, it is this spirit-appointed opportunity, right? The Holy Spirit gives someone in a moment the ability to speak a language they don't already know, and sometimes even the language of angels, which is really cool, right? It's really impressive. It'd be really crazy to see that happen. But Paul says, without love, it's just obnoxious noise. You see, Corinth was a city known for exporting bronze. This is one of their chief export products. And so if you've seen the movie 300, which I'm not necessarily recommending, you've seen their armor and that the helmets they wear, right? That's real Spartan armor. That's Corinthian bronze. What's a little less accurate is like the no shirt thing in battle. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't think Spartans were doing that. But the helmets are real. That was accurate. And so what historians will tell you is that in the marketplaces in Corinth, people were selling bronze at a lot of different vendors. And so one of the ways they would try to drum up business is they'd take these old vessels and just beat the snot out of them with sticks and try to make all this noise so people would go, what is going on over there, and go buy a pot or a pan or a helmet or something. Right? And so what Paul is saying is, hey, you know like that noise in the marketplace, the, the gongs and the crashing? If you speak miraculously, if you can speak the way angels do, but the people who hear you, they don't feel loved, You don't love them. It's just noise. It's not impressive. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom like all mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You see, with the gift of prophecy, that's a moment in time where the Holy Spirit reveals to a Christian something they don't already know. Right? It might be like a specific fact about a person or, or some idea, but it's this miraculous thing. But Paul says if you don't share that knowledge in love, You're not like an important messenger from God. You've become nothing. You have nothing to say. Right? We believe here that that God can do what he says. We believe the Bible is true and that everything in it that talks about the amazing works of God, that that's the truth. But if we have that belief and have no love for God or others, we have become nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, scholars take kind of two different approaches with this verse, right? Some of them will tell you, well, what Paul is referring to is this not very often ancient practice of of selling yourself into slavery so your family can no longer be in debt, right? It's really generous. It's a big deal. Some people, if you have a different translation with you this morning, uh, you might see that it says, give my body over to the flames. Because some scholars believe that Paul is actually referring to dying for your faith, Suffering as a martyr. Again, a really bold, generous thing. But Paul says, without love, even that is meaningless. If you're just giving or doing this really big, generous act just so people will recognize you, just so you'll look good in the eyes of others, or just go down in the history books as this awesome Christian who suffered in this really amazing way, but you have no love for God and his people, you have no love for those who don't know him yet, you gain nothing from that. Nothing. 
right? The word love can mean a lot of things in our language. We can say, like, I love chocolate, and I love my grandkids in the same conversation. So I think it's really important that we, we kind of nail down, okay, what does Paul mean when he says this word, love? Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, and it does not boast. It is not proud, and it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking or easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Love always trusts. It always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. This is love as the scriptures talk about it. Alistair Begg points out that all these descriptions in the Greek are actually verbs in the present continuous. So what that means is Paul is actually describing what love does than trying to nail down kind of like what love is. Paul's saying, what does love do? What does love not do? And he's choosing here eight ways to describe what love does do and eight things to say, here's what love does not do. And what I find really interesting is all the things that love does, they're about other people. Love is patient to other people. Love is kind to other people. Love trusts others and protects others. And at the same time, all the negative aspects of love, right? all the things it does not do, they're all about defeating our own selfishness. right? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking or easily angered. It does not boast. It is not proud. And so love, we have to understand, is this very outward-looking thing. Right? Love is about others. And it's not about ourselves. There's a reason we read this passage at weddings. And it's because love is so compelling and beautiful. And the truth is, people inside and outside the church, they understand that. They know that love is good. John Scott describes this kind of love as a servant of the will and not a victim of the emotions. And it's important to understand as we define love this morning that affections definitely matter. Don't, don't hear me say that your affection for other people or Jesus doesn't matter. It does. But the kind of love that Paul is talking about is a love that loves when it is hard. This is a love that loves its enemies, people who hate it. That is the kind of love Paul is referring to. It's a love that loves when we don't feel like it. And sometimes I think that if we can imagine being a more loving person or if we can recall times where people showed this kind of love for us, then this idea of like love being beautiful, it won't be just a platitude, right? It'll, it'll mean something. I want to dive into that, right? Imagine being truly patient with your kids. If you have kids that live in your house with you, imagine being truly patient with them. Not getting angry when they're being selfish. More than willing but happy to hear the same story like over and over and over again. Not being offended or lashing out when they disrespect you like I do all the time. But patiently correcting them, not in your pride, but with their good in mind. Imagine being on the receiving end of kindness that you don't deserve when you really need it. I've actually experienced this before when I was just imagining, you know, times I've received kindness. It reminded me of this story when I was in high school. Uh, I should start, this is a cautionary tale. This is not something you should do. My freshman and sophomore years, I was making some really dumb decisions. And if you hear any gasps coming from the audience, my parents are here. They haven't heard this one before. So that's what's going on. <laughs> well, my sophomore year, what my friends and I used to do is one of them would sneak liquor out of their parents' cabinet, stuff it in a water bottle, and we would drink before school. That was me in my sophomore year, real winner. Um, so funny enough, my first class, uh, my first semester of my sophomore year was driver's ed. Some of you guys are getting ahead of me, right? 
So uh, one day I have maybe more than my fair share of the bottle, um, and I sort of stumble into driver's ed laughing about nothing, just being stupid. And uh, my friend Robert is in this class with me, and he knows what's up. Like, he knows what's going on. But that day, when I had more than my fair share, we had a special class. Our school liaison officer walked in because he was going to demo to one lucky student what a breathalyzer was like. Yeah. Our school liaison officer was not stupid. He can look out in a sea of students and know if something is up. And so, as my friend Robert tells the story, because I wasn't super crisp that morning, <laughs> he said what, what he saw was the school officer kind of look at me, and I'm just going to pick someone, sorry bud. And he looks at me, and you, you can tell he's about to call on me. He's picking me out of the crowd, and my buddy Robert sees what's going on, and he's like, hey, I want to do the breathalyzer test, look at me! And he makes a total fool out of himself, like no 16-year-old boy would ever do. And so the, the school officer kind of had to just let him do it because he'd made a big scene, right? He'd look weird if he didn't. Robert showed me kindness I totally didn't deserve. He made a fool out of himself. He embarrassed himself to show me kindness when I desperately needed it because I would have been in a world of trouble. For what it's worth, I eventually got caught. Um, <laughs> so imagine that, right? Have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of kindness? Hopefully not for doing something as stupid as what I did. Or have you ever known like a, a truly humble person, right? Paul says that love does not boast, it is not arrogant or proud. Have you known someone who's like that? Someone who takes a genuine interest in you when you speak and doesn't try to like one-up your stories? Or maybe someone who in the world status is just more educated or rich or intelligent or successful than you, but they want to be your friend. They want to be friends with you. Or can you imagine living your life this morning constantly motivated by the good of others and a genuine love of God? Can you imagine being the kind of person that really drove all the activity in your life? Can you imagine thinking not poorly of yourself, right, but just not thinking about yourself as often and what people thought about you, being freed from that? That's what love is like. Or instead of needing to be the funniest or smartest person in the room or having control over situations or exerting your influence on people or desperately grabbing for comfort wherever you can find it, can you imagine being able to care and love for people with selfless motivations? Have you ever known a person that shows honor to everyone? I mean everyone. A coworker who takes credit for their ideas, or a boss who diminishes their accomplishments, or a teacher or professor who's just straight up mean to them. Have you ever known someone like that? Can you imagine having control over your temper, not being dominated by anger whenever you're frustrated because your plans fail? Can you imagine this morning never again holding someone's sin against them? Ever. Stephen Um points out in his really helpful commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, on our best days, we long to give this kind of love that verses 4 through 7 talk about, and on our worst days, we're desperate to receive it. But here's the thing this morning. We need to remember that Paul did not write this letter as a feel-good manifesto. This is a rebuke to this church. Because the reality is that for 12 chapters, Paul has been talking about every single way they stand in opposition to this kind of love. You see, in Corinth, they do none of the stuff love does and all of the things that it doesn't do. The only kind of love they have in Corinth is a love for themselves. Paul here is holding up the standard of love and showing the Corinthian church. He's saying, you see how love is patient and kind? You see its humility? 
You see how it rejoices with the truth? You see how it trusts and hopes and perseveres for others? Guys, you don't do any of this stuff. And Corinth, do you see that love doesn't get jealous or brag or boast about itself? Do you see how it isn't prideful and it doesn't put down others to feel good about itself? Do you see how it doesn't rejoice in evil, which means being happy when your enemies fall? You see how love doesn't do that? Guys, Corinth, you do all these things. You do all of them. As we discussed in chapter 4 of this book, Paul is a good, loving father. When you hear these sharp words from him, don't think he's just like some jerk who's coming from the outside, writing these people a letter and he doesn't know them. Paul had traveled here at risk to his own life to plant this church five years earlier. Many of these men, women, and children got saved through Paul's preaching and the grace of God. But he is calling them out this morning for standing in opposition to love. Again, we have to remember, this passage is writing on the back of 12 chapters of rebuke. This morning, Paul is writing to them, he's saying, I'm not impressed with your spirituality. I'm not impressed or blown away that like, you guys can speak in tongues or lay your hands on people and heal them or have the secret spiritual insight. Rather, Paul is writing, and he is appalled at their lack of love for each other. Because they're not doing this because they care, they just want to look good for themselves. They're not motivated by love. Paul rebukes him, he says, you guys are thinking and acting like children. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. You see, all of us here are either, we were children at some point or we still are. And that's like a backhanded compliment. I mean, literally, some of you are like five, six years old. I'm not trying to burn into you guys. Right, but think about when you were a kid. Think about your own childhood. Did anyone have to take you to the side and teach you to protect your toys from your brothers and sisters and friends? Did anyone have to teach you to demand things from others or shout or cry or stomp if you were hungry or crabby or tired? Did anyone have to like, take you to the side and say, all right, bud, listen, Tim, everyone else matters less than you. Just remember that. Go ahead. No one gave us that lesson, but we all do it. And here, Paul is not ragging on kids. Let me be clear. God loves children. Paul, writing this letter, God working through him, he loves children. That's not the point. Jesus even encourages us to become like children, to enter the kingdom through humble dependence on our Father. He says we won't enter it unless we become like children. But what Paul is referring to is the fact that kids have a much harder time hiding their selfishness than we do. That's why he brings up this picture. The reality this morning is we are more like the Corinthians than unlike them. We are more like the Corinthians than unlike them. This passage is a loving rebuke for us too. You see, the truth is we're not often kind to those in our care because it is easier to be selfish than to be gentle, and we often make that choice. And instead of forgiving our coworkers like we hold grudges, guys, sometimes it seems like in the Midwest we have a hobby, I'm, I'm included in this, of talking bad about our coworkers behind their backs. We don't forgive, we hold grudges. And you see the fact that it takes us so much effort and focus and energy to be nice to someone we don't like, it's just evidence of our fallenness. As you need to understand, I need to understand, sin is not primarily about our actions. It is a heart disease. We are sinners by nature and by choice. If you've ever simply tried to be a better person in your own strength, you know that that doesn't go well for long. 
If you decide, okay, on Monday, there's this dude, Mark. I don't know anyone named Mark here, so if you are called Mark, I'm sorry. But there's this dude, Mark, who's just super annoying at your job, right? He just, maybe he chews with his mouth open, or maybe he comes in and talks to you for 45 minutes, you're trying to get something done, whatever, whatever gets your goat, right? Mark is the annoying dude. And you decide, okay, on Monday, I just want to be really loving to Mark. I want to do a good job loving Mark well. And so you say hi, you try to ask about his weekend, and maybe it goes well for a while. But the last time you tried to force kindness to someone you don't love, how well did it go? And for how long? And was the change simply external? Was there like an internal change where you actually cared about this person? She says, we are powerless to become more loving in our own strength. And honestly, if we look at verses 4 through 7, and we try to put our name in place of love, it gets awkward real fast. Right? I'll try it for a second, but I'm not even going to get through verse 4 because it's really weird. It's embarrassing. Just, I'll put myself out there just for fun. Right? John is patient. Sometimes. Like, catch me between my second and third cup of coffee and I don't have a lot going on that day and maybe breakfast is really good. Sure, I'm patient for 10, maybe 5 minutes. But can you characterize my life as consistently patient when things aren't going well? And then I'm always patient with my children and my spouse, my coworkers? No, no. See, none of us can put our names in the place of love in these, path, in these verses. None of us. Like the Corinthians, we act like selfish kids. And in verse 11, Paul says, we have to grow up. We need to put our selfishness behind us and put away the self-focused mindset that is at the time plaguing the Corinthian church, but it can plague ours as well. We don't want it to. The question this morning is, what is our hope? How can we possibly become the people God has called us to be? How can we finally shake free of our pride and our selfishness? How can we finally put it behind us and grow up like Paul asks? Verse 11. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Here is our one I'm holding up two fingers. Here's our one and only hope this morning. Jesus has loved us perfectly. Perfectly. This is what we need vision to see. Jesus who fully knows us, who knows every way we are impatient and unkind and every way that we boast and are proud, every way we put down others and rejoice in our enemies fall, he sees all of it. He has perfect vision into the depths of your heart and mine, and he sees our sinfulness, and he loves us anyways. And God, he doesn't love us in like this ethereal, distant, weird sense. Like he loves us personally. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had any interest in God, before we had any love for his people, at our very worst is when Jesus died for us. When we desperately needed it, he showed us kindness. And the truth is, without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, we would still be God's enemies, not his children. But God shows his love in this way again, while seeing all the ways we are jealous and proud and boastful, while having full vision of our selfishness and our anger and the way we delight when our enemies fall. Instead, he falls for us. He falls for us. When we put our name in the place of the word love in verses 4 through 7, it does not go well. But when we replace them with Jesus' name, it fits so perfectly. Jesus is patient. 
Amen. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. Jesus is not proud. He does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking, and he is not easily angered. Hallelujah. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. That is to sink in for us. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs for those who are believing in him. Jesus does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. He never fails. God, I, I need you to hear this, guys. Jesus this morning is not just a good example to us. If we walk out of here believing, okay, I'm unloving, Jesus is loving, I need to be more like him, the end, we are walking out of here hopeless. Don't hear that. Rather, we need to understand that Jesus has loved us personally like this. Not us as a group, although that too, but you as an individual. Jesus loves you like this. He's been patient and kind with you. He has not held your fault against you. Do you know that Jesus' death was for you this morning? Do you know that your own sin was enough to merit his death, but he loved you enough to die for you personally? How has Jesus been patient with you? If you don't belong to him yet, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if your life doesn't belong to him, how long has he been patiently asking you to believe in him for the first time? Or if you're a Christian, how has he been patient with you this week? How has Jesus been patient with you? Do you see this morning how Jesus has been kind to you? How he suffered voluntarily under God's punishment for sin in your place so you don't have to? Guys, Jesus has been so kind and patient with me. Going to youth group and drinking at school, having a foot in both ponds for years, he waited. He still waits for me. He's still patient and kind with me. Do you see how he's patient and kind with you? Do you see the humility of Jesus this morning? how he doesn't brag or boast because he fully deserves to. He is perfect. If anyone deserves to be boasting, it's Jesus. But instead, as Philippians 2 says, he took on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Maybe this question that's most direct, on a daily basis, do we see how Jesus keeps no record of our wrongs with as many as they are Do you know this morning that if you've put your repentant faith in him, he sees you as perfect and holy? I don't know about you, but it has been really good for me at a heart level to just meditate on how much God loves me and how much I don't deserve it. What Paul writes and what God is telling us through his word this morning is that our lack of love for others comes from our lack of vision our lack of seeing how well God loves us, and the way we put selfishness behind us, the way we grow up is to look at Jesus. It's not to do better and try harder, it's to look at Jesus. See, the reflection in a mirror Paul is talking about here, what what it's pointing to is is this bronze mirror, right? So Corinth and, and bronze and all that, right? So the way they had mirrors back then is they would simply take a piece of metal, they would polish it as best they could, and they'd try to see the reflection. So I think if you have like a stainless steel appliance in your house, it's kind of like looking at that. How good is the reflection compared to like a modern mirror? It's hazy. It's hard to see. That's what it's like now. We don't see Jesus fully. But we look to Jesus knowing that just as he knows us fully today, we will see him and know him fully one day. We will look at him in the face forever. We will love him perfectly because he has perfectly loved us. And when that happens, nothing else is going to matter. 
knowledge and gifts, they're going to go away. Even faith and hope will have served their purpose. We won't need faith because we'll know, we'll see. We won't need hope because it'll have been fulfilled. So this morning, what God is encouraging us to do is to look at Jesus. And yes, to look at him when you spend time praying and reading your Bible, totally. When you, when you come to church, yeah, but, but when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're with your friends, when you're waiting in line at the DMV, the way we grow in love, the way we grow up and put selfishness behind us is to look at Jesus. And that can look like a lot of things, but maybe this morning it would just look like you talking to God and asking him to reveal to you all the ways that you stand in opposition to love. Or maybe just one. And all the ways that Jesus has loved you fully and perfectly. You see, looking to Jesus, that's what we do every week when we take communion. The elements are on the tables in the back. And if you've trusted Jesus' death and resurrection to make you right with God, if your life belongs to him, then whenever you're ready, please feel free when we're singing, go back and take communion. And if that's not you this morning, I just want you to know how welcome you are here. How excited we are to have you in this body. How your questions and doubts and concerns are welcome. But I want to encourage you, if that's not you, don't take communion yet. Don't let it be an empty religious ritual. Come to Jesus first. Don't stop looking to Jesus. Because one day that is what we will spend all of our time doing. And we will be filled to the brim with joy and peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your death and your resurrection that makes us right with you. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make it clear how well you have loved us and how much we don't deserve it, God. You are good, truly and really. You are love. And God, that love transforms us and nothing else does, God. So I pray that you would take our twisted motivations, our unloving ways, God, that you'd forgive us because Jesus died in our place and that you would change us for your glory and for our joy. Amen.